Good evening and welcome. The Lord calls us this evening to worship with these words from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God is worthy of our utmost praise. But we need His equipping, His strength to enable us to give Him that. So let's begin our time together by asking for His help, for His blessing, to enable us to give Him the worship He is due. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you for bringing us to this place as your people. We pray that you would enable us to give you the worship you deserve, that you would remove from us all distraction, and that you would enable us to focus our very hearts upon you. May you receive all the glory and the honor, even as you equip and build up your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Brothers and sisters, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 8. A, 8A, we'll sing the first four stanzas, then six and seven.
We confess our faith together this evening using the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find that in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal, page 852. Page 852. Joining our hearts and minds with the church throughout the world and throughout the ages. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. And ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. For our psalm selection this evening, my catechism class asked, so are we going to read all of Psalm 119? And I said, eventually. Um, We're going to read Psalm 119 in sections. This psalm is an acrostic. It has 22 stanzas of eight verses each. And each of those stanzas, each of those sections begins with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first begins with the Hebrew, word, Hebrew letter Aleph, which is somewhat equivalent to our A, the second with the Hebrew letter Bet, and so on. And those are the two we're going to read uh, this evening. The emphasis throughout this psalm is that God's law is good. Now, sometimes we, we get so caught up, so wrapped up in 
the fact that God's law condemns us because of our sin, that we start to look at it as a bad thing. But Psalm 119 reminds us that, in fact, God's law is very good. It's what shows us the sin that would destroy us. What reminds us of the righteousness for which we were created and by the embrace of which we're able to reflect the very image of God. Now we fail, we fall short, we miss the mark time and time and time again in our sin, in our rebellion. But that doesn't make the law of God any worse. That makes, actually emphasizes the goodness of the law as opposed to the badness of our sin. Now this first two sections, the first one reminds us that the one who follows after the law of God, who does the righteousness which that law commands, is blessed. Which ultimately means that that section is exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who perfectly kept God's law. But it also shows us where our blessing is as those who've been united to Jesus, to whom his righteousness and his obedience have been imputed. And then the second section, I remember singing this to my children when they were young, when they were in the crib. For you parents with young children, this is a beautiful lullaby. How can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is by looking to God's word. God's word is not constraining or restrictive. It's freeing. It frees us from that sin and that wickedness and that rebellion that would otherwise drag us down. And so this stanza of the psalm urges us to find the freedom, to, res- to rest in the freedom of God's law. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Amen. Let's sing together the first eight verses, the first stanza of this psalm, which we find in selection 236 of our uh, Psalter hymnal, number 236.
As we come to the Lord in prayer, I'd remind you of the the prayer concerns we uh, noted this morning for quite a number of folks, and there are a few others. Um, I heard from Karen Brine, Marge Vanderveen's daughter today, um, that Marge is uh, not doing well. She's getting very weak, um, very little response when, uh, when family and friends are there. Uh, just pray for her comfort and also for the comfort and the encouragement of her family. Um, also, please pray for uh, Tyler Grunewald's mother, Margaret, who's in the hospital um, dealing with the effects of a, a bowel obstruction. Um, and pray for Tyler as he's there to comfort and encourage her. Um, and then, oh, uh, we noted this morning Jim Walthorn, who's in the hospital for a bone marrow transplant. Uh, just to clarify, he's actually getting chemotherapy first, um, now and through Tuesday. And then on Thursday, they'll give him the bone marrow transplant. And then after that, he's in there for observation uh, for the coming weeks. So please pray for Jim. Um, you see in your announcement bulletin the prayer concern for the work in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, Pastor Rifle. Um, that's an exciting work, and we should be keeping that in prayer. And, and then also I received a prayer concern um, from one of our ministers who was a classmate of mine in seminary um, who is working with the OPC in Karamoja, Uganda. Um, sometimes it's really hard to, to wrap our heads around what some of our brothers and sisters deal with throughout the world. He, um, he writes, Pastor Folkerts writes, that in their area of Uganda, they are having very bad cattle raiding, some of the worst that has happened there in over a decade. Um, one village was raided last week, and they took over 90 head of cattle, which is a major hit. Um, one of their members was shot. Pastor Folkerts took him to the hospital, but he died of his wounds, and he leaves behind a wife and seven children. That's hard. Uh, tremendously difficult. Uh, people are sleeping in caves or at the local schools seeking safety. And uh, consequently, Brother Folkerts was praying, planning to preach on... Lord's Day 46, and remind them where their comfort and where their hope is found. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Uganda and and throughout the world that live and worship under the threat of persecution, death, the darkness of this world. And we need to remember that God is on the throne. So let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, How good it is for us to know that you are on the throne. We live in a world that is filled with darkness and pain, loneliness and suffering. We ourselves are beset by temptations and the effects of our own sin. And yet you are so good to us. Time and time and time again, you bless us. You encourage us. You remind us that we stand not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And you assure us that through Jesus, 
we can be confident that you will never leave us or forsake us. How blessed we are, Lord, and how desperately we need that comfort. We have heard of many of our members and our friends this day who are struggling, struggling with cancer, struggling with the effects of age, struggling with various illnesses and impending surgeries and transplants and the like. And all of it leaves us feeling powerless. But we know that you have all power, all strength and all goodness. And so we commend these all to you. We pray that you would provide the healing, the strength and the encouragement that each one of them needs. Our members who are dealing with cancer, that you would provide the healing and the strength our members who are recovering from surgery and dealing with great pain, that you would provide relief. Our loved ones, we think of Marge, who's drawing near, it seems, to death. We ask that you would provide the comfort that she and her family need in the knowledge that in Christ you have overcome death and have transformed it into a passageway by which we enter the fullness of your presence And Father, we ask that you would bless each one of these with the comfort and the encouragement that they crave. We pray for uh, loved ones who are dealing with struggles. We think of Tyler's mother, Margaret. We ask that you would comfort her and provide healing for her. And also that you would use Tyler to minister to her and remind her of your grace. And Lord, you know the other struggles fears, doubts, hurts that we're experiencing. Lord, we pray that you would use all of them to draw us closer to you so that more and more and more our faith might be built and we might be confident that everything we need we find in you. Father, we pray for your continued blessing upon your church here at Grace, that you would bless our elders, our deacons, our pastor, that through them the saints might be built up and equipped for the work of ministry so that brothers and sisters might minister to one another, so that we might be known for our love, for our compassion, for our mercy, for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation. And when we fail at that, when we fall short, which we do, Lord, I pray that you would humble us and that you would teach us humbly to approach one another, seeking forgiveness, confessing our faults, desiring, Lord, the unity and the strengthening that only you can provide. And we pray that you would watch over your church throughout this country and throughout the world. Father, we pray for the work in Indianapolis and the labors of Brother Rifle. We ask that you would bless them in this exciting time in which many have been brought to them, but also this labor-intensive time in which they have much baggage to unpack, new believers to catechize and disciple 
unity to build, office bearers to train. We pray that you would use that work to spread the gospel throughout Indianapolis and its region. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up the church throughout this nation. We are so desperately in need of it. We are so desperately in need of the gospel. We are, as a nation, so divided and so enmeshed in the darkness and the folly of sin. At a time when in this nation where where once our people were united around the truths expressed in the Bible, where once there was unity in a biblical worldview, in an understanding of, of where we came from and how we've been blessed. Now there are multitudes who pretend that the truth is flexible and individual, who mold their morality to fit their feelings in the moment and who think they can promote darkness and wickedness and sin with impunity. And Father, we know that it's not true. They, in their hearts, know that it's not true. That it is, in fact, a path of darkness leading to destruction. Lord, we pray that you would raise up your church, not simply to condemn them, but to show them a better way. To show them a way of peace and comfort and truth that leads unto life. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who worship you and grow in their discipleship in situations so very much different than ours. We think of of the saints in Uganda and the labors of Brother Folkerts as there are livelihoods being stolen Families grieving, believers huddled in caves and in schools, seeking safety and wondering what the night will bring. We pray, Father, that you would care for and protect your people and that you would teach them to trust in you who sit upon the throne as the one who stands firm even when kingdoms topple and whose plan will always come to pass for the people whom you love. Father, we pray that you would bless Brother Folkerts with the ability to proclaim gospel comfort with faithfulness and boldness. We pray for the many young believers of that church, that you would strengthen them and that you would use their testimony and their boldness even to bear witness in the face of their enemies. And Father, we pray that you would protect your church in other places where they live and labor under the darkness of the cross they bear. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East where the wickedness of Islam seeks the downfall and destruction of all that is true and good. In parts of Africa where Islam has taken over and other parts where there is great uh, poverty. We think of our brothers and sisters in China and in North Korea and places where communism seeks to establish itself as the true God and and to exalt man to sit on the throne. We pray that you would make our brothers and sisters in those places to stand firm and be filled with conviction that they might proclaim your truth to those who are desperate for truth. We pray, Father, for 
for those in lands where spirituality seems dead, where the ways of the flesh have held sway like, like Europe, but where there is a desperation for truth and comfort. Likewise in, in Ukraine and the surrounding countries where there's so much hurt and so much struggle due to warfare, many crying out for justice. Lord, help them to see that true justice comes from the King of Kings. But not only justice, also mercy for all who will turn to you in Christ. And we pray for those in Turkey and Syria who are grieving over the tens of thousands who have died in the earthquakes, wondering what tomorrow will hold and where tomorrow's sustenance will come from and and where their future will lie. Lord, you know the answers to these things. Grant that they might seek and find their hope and their strength in you. And Lord, to that end, we pray that you would equip, strengthen, and empower your servants throughout the world, wherever your people gather, including us, Lord. Equip your people to give good answer, testifying to the reason for the hope within us, boldly telling others, That there is a Savior, that He is the King, that in Him there is hope and there is help and there is strength that is always unshaken and undimmed. And now, Father, as we prepare to look together to Your Word, we pray that You would use that Word to encourage and strengthen us, reminding us that the hope and the help that we need come not from us, nor from our plans or our striving, but from You who set us apart, many of us, even from our earliest days, that we might always be reminded that you are the one to whom we look. Your help is that in which we rely. Now, Father, we pray this all in the only sufficient name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. As we, uh, as we prepare to look together to the truth of God's Word summarized in our catechism... Um, Let's stand and sing the second stanza of Psalm 119. We'll find that in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, selection 119b. 119b.
we're going to look together to Lord's Day 27 in our catechism. But first, I'd like to read with you from Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verses 13 through 23. Now, what we need to remember about this text is that Israel was about to be exiled. Not immediately, but but soon. That had already become clear. And God in this book had already made it very evident to the people of Israel that that time is coming. That it was inevitable because of the sins of generations of His people. But God had resolved also to comfort them. Calling them to trust in Him. To put their faith in His help. And assuring them that if they did, they would be restored to Him. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Amen. And how very true that has become as God has restored His people not merely to a land of promise, but to the assurance of an eternal, endless kingdom that will span the entirety of the creation. Now, Article 27 is, or Lord's Day 27, is the second Lord's Day that deals with baptism and its significance. Last time we looked at some of the symbolism there and the, uh, the assurance that we find there. Lord's Day 27 continues and concludes that discussion and then talks about the proper recipients of baptism. Does this outward washing of water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then? Does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? 
God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants, each, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Amen. Congregation of God beloved in Christ, have you ever gone to a museum to examine works of art? Now I have to admit, that's not really high on my list of of enjoyable evenings on the whole. But sometimes when you're in college, they stretch you outside your comfort zone and force you to study culture, whether you want to or not. And despite your best efforts to waste those opportunities, sometimes it actually teaches you something. When I was in college, we were required to take these classes called humanities. Humanities required us to study the art and the literature and the philosophy and the architecture of various ages and various cultures because those artistic endeavors can reveal the worldview that underlies a person's culture, the society in which they live, the things that guide them and direct them. But that's tricky. Interpreting worldview from music and art and other cultural artifacts. Put on display a single piece of abstract art. Let's say a a black dot in the middle of a field of white. What's it mean? What is the significance of that abstract art? One person says it represents cultural isolation. Being alone in the midst of all that is different. Another person says, no, no, it represents the boldness of the era, the stark blackness on that field of stunning white. It demonstrates that the boldness, that there is no gray, there is no compromise. Others say, no, 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 it's, it's all about the glory of achievement. The circle represents an indelible mark on that otherwise unmarred surface. And another yet says, no, no, this is the despair of sin. There's the beauty of the, the purity of the white, but it's been defiled by that darkness. Now, which one is true? Which one does that art actually represent? Many in today's culture would say, yes, all of them. Whatever is true for you, whatever it represents to you, that's what it really means. But that's a lie. We believe there is such a thing as absolute truth, even when it comes to art. So if we want to know the real meaning of that work of art, ideally we would ask the artist. Or we would look in that artist's writings and see if he had left an interpretation. Because although the human mind can imagine a variety of meanings for that simple image, what is determinative for what it actually represents is what the artist intended. So it is with all images. 
And that includes the sacraments. We saw last week that baptism is the perfect visual aid. It's one of two means that God has given to visually represent the gospel. It's one of the two images that God has commanded to be included in worship, and therefore one of, the, of, of only two that is permitted in worship. We saw that the image of baptism is really a simple image, isn't it? It's the image of a bath. Cleansing of that which is dirty. As the water cleanses the body, so the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ cleanses the soul. It's a simple image. And if we're to understand it, then we have to understand it in light of the author who taught us what it means in Scripture. And that's what we need to consider this evening. A bit further, we saw, we focused on the symbolism last time. Today we need to focus a bit more on how do we use that symbolism? What do we do with it? How do we grow from it? As we do, we see that Baptism was given to reveal, even to emphasize for us, to deepen for us the realities of Christian forgiveness. That's our theme. Baptism was given to reveal the realities of Christian forgiveness. And the first reality that it emphasizes for us, that it drives home for us, is the blood that enables forgiveness. Now question 72 asks... A very helpful question. Does the outward washing with water itself wash away sins? That's a question that was included in our catechism to head off a particularly common error 500 years ago in the age of the Reformation. It was a superstitious view, quite prominent in the Catholic Church now, I don't say that to bash the Catholic Church, but we need to know the error, the error so we don't repeat it. Here's what the Catholic Church back then and also today says about baptism. It says, Baptism is the source of that new life in Christ from which the entire Christian life springs forth. It says, The Church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism. And it says, by baptism, by baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. And then it says, baptism not only purifies from all sins. Notice that, not Christ, but baptism purifies from all sins and also makes the neophyte, the new Christian, a new creature. An adopted son of God who's become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ, and a co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the key. In their doctrine, in their belief, which is superstitious, baptism accomplishes that irrespective of how you receive it. Faith is commanded of those baptized, but whether or not they believe, whether or not they trust what baptism shows them, baptism accomplishes the salvation of the one baptized in their view. Thus the superstitious practice of long ago of waiting until your deathbed to be baptized. 
They believed that would ensure that the greatest possible number of sins would be erased and you would have the shortest possible time of suffering in purgatory. Problem is, that's not why God said baptism was given to us. Baptism is not a magical rite that accomplishes salvation, but rather an image that points to the greater reality of Christ. And that greater reality has two parts. In Acts 2, verse 38, Peter instructs the crowd which has been overwhelmed by the the sinfulness of their sin. He tells them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In order to be forgiven, we need Jesus Christ, and we need His Spirit. And baptism is given to represent that. Baptism points, first of all, to Christ's blood. The blood of Christ is what atones for our sin. All of the Old Testament pointed forward to that. The worship of Israel's temple was absolutely filled with blood. Because blood represents life, blood poured out represents death, and death is the cost of our sin. And so the temple was absolutely filled with blood. The blood shed from lambs and from goats and from cattle and from birds. Blood that was brought before the altar, that was brought into the most holy place, even blood that was sprinkled upon the people and upon the priests. Blood absolutely filled the temple worship because blood has to be shed in order to atone for our sins. This also was the reality behind circumcision. The Old Testament sacrament of circumcision pointed forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a sacrament representing birth, but also a sacrament that involved the shedding of blood. Because there is no forgiveness, there is no incorporation into into unity with God and reconciliation to God apart from the shedding of blood. And so all of that blood pointed forward to Christ and the the shedding of blood by which He would atone for our sins. Colossians 2 says to the Christian, to the believer, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, baptism points toward the same thing that circumcision pointed toward. And that's our unity with Christ, the one who died for us, the one whose blood cleanses us, the one who reconciles us to God, whom we receive through faith. Baptism points us to the reality of the blood which frees us from the cost of sin. And it points also to his Holy Spirit. God the Spirit is the one who makes us alive in Christ by giving us the faith that unites us to Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses. You were dead. Absolutely unable to save yourself, unable to to reason yourself into what you need to do, unable to confess the ugliness and the emptiness of your sinful life. But God, through His Holy Spirit, revealed to you your death, your hopelessness, your need. God 
worked in your heart so that you could understand the gospel and cling tight to it. God imparted that faith to your heart by which you would be joined to Christ so that His blood could cleanse you from all sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us access to the blood which cleanses us. He enlivens us so that we can receive the life that is in Christ. And having brought us, He remains to cleanse our lives from that sin which was killing us. And baptism shows that to us. It shows us how the blood cleanses our souls. It shows us how this Holy Spirit washes over us and cleanses our lives. That's the most essential message of baptism. Now the sacrament itself is important. God commanded it. And God uses it to teach us and to encourage us. But we must remember that baptism itself does not save us. It is powerless to effect that which we need. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from sin. Only the Spirit of Christ can unite us to that blood. Baptism serves to reveal that reality to us. And so we must use baptism in the light of that reality. When you think on your own baptism, remember what God promised through it. What God displayed through it. When you see someone else baptized, understand and and think upon the reality that it displays. And then understanding that reality about the blood that enables forgiveness, confess your need for the blood that Christ shed. Confess your reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. And trust the one who sent the sign. And then we come to question 73. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? You understand why this question comes? We just ask, is is it the outward washing? Is it the, the sacrament itself that saves us? Well, no, it's not that. Well, if it's not that, then why does Scripture itself call washing the water or call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sin? Doesn't that seem a little misleading? To speak in that way. But it's not. The Bible is merely using sacramental language. Sacramental language is speaking of the symbol as though it was the reality itself. And not without reason. Because that language points to the certainty of what the sacrament shows us. The teaching we get through this language points us always back to the blood and the Spirit of Christ. Just as the water cleanses the body, so surely the blood of Christ cleanses our souls. Just as the water makes the body pure, so Jesus' Spirit is able to make our lives pure. Jesus is the one who provides all that is necessary and He provides it just as certainly, just as assuredly as that water provides for our bodies. But that assurance of the language points to the reality of the word that commands forgiveness. That's our second point. Look at answer 73. God has good reason for these words. First of all, he wants to teach us about the blood and spirit of Christ. But then more importantly, he wants to assure us that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with the water physically. Jesus' blood and Spirit are what make forgiveness possible. But that sacrament, the water, 
The water that you can see even in the pew, the water that wets that child's hair and makes him start a bit, that, that dampens the arm of the father who's holding that child, that water demonstrates the truth and the power of a reality that we can't see with our eyes. See, God wants us to trust Him to forgive us. And He wants us to know that His promises are real. That's one of the reasons that we read from that passage in Isaiah 49. As I said, God wrote this or sent this through Isaiah with the exile imminent. The sins of God's people had made exile a foregone conclusion. The northern kingdom was already gone. The wheels were already in motion. Humanly speaking, it seemed impossible that Israel could be restored. But God says, God says, don't trust the armies of men, the plans of men, the the ideas of men. Don't trust the religious rites and the pious works of men. But at the same time, don't give up hope. Look to me. Trust me. I will restore you. What's he say? Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet and then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. It wasn't men who would restore Israel. It was the Lord our God in magnificent ways. And that's what happened, isn't it? Remember what happened at the end of the exile? It wasn't amazing and heroic men from among Israel that restored them. It was a foreign king from Persia who had been foretold through Isaiah 70 years before, who was raised up on the throne and called forth a remnant from Israel that was scattered among the nations and said, go back and rebuild and offer sacrifices to your God. And then God raised up Yeshua and Zerubbabel to lead the people back to the land. And then God called Ezra to exhort the people to serve him with new hearts. And then he raised up Nehemiah to cause them to live before him with fervor and passion. In time, God spoke to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, and he sent his own son so that the return from the exile would not just be a physical reality, but a spiritual reality. And through the apostles of Jesus, he called forth his exiles, his elect from even among the Gentiles our forefathers. And today He calls, He commands, He saves us to each one whom He has chosen. He sends the Word proclaiming the Gospel. He sends the Spirit softening our hearts. He sends the faith by which we're united to Christ. He sends the blood which conquers our sin and cleanses our soul and the Spirit who begins transforming our lives. Always it is God who commands, God who ordains, God who gathers, God who forgives, God who accomplishes all of it. And the job of baptism is to give us an assurance of that reality that we can't otherwise touch. You see the water used in baptism and you know that water will cleanse. If that child is dirty, that water can be used to cleanse the baby, right? And just as real, just as concrete, just as touchable as is that water. That's how real, that's how effective is the power of God to cleanse that child's soul. 
That's the assurance that we receive. The forgiving word of the gospel is just as real as that water. The forgiveness that he commands is just as effective as a bath. God's command to cleanse, to restore, to forgive is just as real and just as trustworthy as the water that we use to baptize so we can trust the one who speaks, who commands forgiveness for all who will believe. Remember that when you witness the sacrament of baptism. Kids, when you see that water, you know it's real water, right? When you hear that promise, remember that it's a real promise. When you hear about that forgiveness, remember that's a real thing that is absolutely essential. And that just as you can trust that water to cleanse the body, you can trust Jesus to cleanse your soul. So believe Him. Trust Him. Don't doubt the one who speaks, the one who shows. But then the question comes, well, okay, but what about infants? Because after all, they can't understand the word that is spoken. They can't understand the image that is shown. How can they even benefit from this? Why give it to them? To answer that objection, we need to see why any any particular person is baptized. Our Baptist brothers and sisters will explain the why question by pointing back to Acts 2. They'll point to Acts 2, where the crowds recognized their need, recognized the misery of their sin, and Peter gave them the gospel. He told them to repent and be baptized. First the gospel, then the sacrament. First repentance accompanied by faith, and then afterward comes baptism. So baptism in their eyes is regarded as voluntary. It's the human response, the human display of the faith that saves us. But listen, that's backward. Baptism isn't about us. It isn't about what we believe, what we decide, what we do. Baptism is about God. It's about what He says, what He accomplishes, what He commands. In Acts 2, Peter is talking to a group of Jews who recognize they have offended God. They have been separated from God by their sins. Spiritually, they're in exile. So Peter does what? He points them to Christ. But notice how he does that. First, he tells them to repent, just like Moses told the people to repent, just like Isaiah told the people to repent, just like all the prophets told the people, you have offended your covenant God, turn away from your sin, reject that rebellion. Then he tells them to be washed in the name of Jesus Christ, to be forgiven. He promises the Holy Spirit who will enable them to do that. And then Peter speaks to them the assuring words of God's covenant. He says, repent, trust Christ, be baptized into Him. And then he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And God said to Abraham, and this is what they're hearing when Peter says that. Genesis 17. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Or as he said through Isaiah in Isaiah 57. 
I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Peter spoke to the crowd those words that would cause them to equate Jesus with the fulfillment of the covenant. They were to see Him as the restoration that God promised His people, to recognize Him as the one who would fulfill what God promised. God said, I will be God to you and to your children after you. And Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the promise is to you and to your children, also to these others whom He's going to call. Jesus fulfills what God promised through Abraham so long ago. Jesus accomplishes what Israel has for generations believed and longed for. Jesus has brought the fulfillment for which they were waiting. Circumcision was a sign of what God would do by means of that covenant promise. A sign and seal of, what, of how God would forgive them. Of how God would save them. Of how God would preserve them. Of how God would bless them and their children. Circumcision, like the sacrament of baptism, spoke to the recipient the command to believe the one who spoke, the one who called, the one who promised. And the only thing they could do was believe the one who spoke. If you refuse to believe, you're cut off. If you refuse to believe, you have rejected God and His promises. Right? You must believe the one who speaks. That's what Israel was told. And so through Abraham, God commanded that sign of circumcision be given even to infants. Why? To show them from the start that it wasn't about what you choose. It wasn't about what you decide. It wasn't about what you resolve. It's about God who calls, God who accomplishes, God who saves. He wanted there to be no doubt these children are mine and it's because of what I will accomplish, what I will do. Not what they will do. What can they do? They're eight days old. How beautiful. Because Colossians 2, they were dead. We were dead. Every one of us is dead. There's nothing a dead person can do to bring themselves to life. But God can bring the death dead forth into life. There's nothing a baby can decide, can choose, can, but God can. And that's the symbolism. It's interesting to recall in this connection how Jesus himself received the children brought to him. Matthew 19, people are bringing these children to Jesus. The children hadn't asked to come. The children had no idea what was happening. Because the word used in Luke's account of this event indicates they were babes in arms. They were infants. The disciples rebuked them. He doesn't have time for infants. These kids don't even understand what you're doing. But Jesus rebukes those disciples. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such, to powerless infants, that's the one to whom God sends the promise. And that fact remains. Even though they didn't choose to come, even though they were brought under the power of someone else. The very same is true when our children are brought for baptism today. They don't choose to come. They're too young to understand. But nonetheless, the promise from God 
The promise of God's power, the promise of Christ's cleansing, the promise of the Holy Spirit's work comes to them. In fact, our baptism as infants allows us to see the reality of baptism even more clearly. Because those children that we baptize are entirely passive in the sacrament. All they do is squirm and cry out when the water falls upon their heads. And that's appropriate because it is God who is active in our salvation, not us. Just as He commands those children to be brought forth, just as He commands the sign and seal to be placed upon them, so He is the one who commands the Holy Spirit to go forth, the gospel to be proclaimed, the heart to be transformed, the faith to be implanted, the confession to come forth. It's all of Him. Just as it is His work entirely to cleanse, it is His work entirely to draw. And we... We can only respond with faith and praise. So baptism reveals to us the covenant that ensures forgiveness. It reveals the covenant showing a restoration that comes entirely from God. It's not about our decision. It's not about our confession. It's about what He promises, what He accomplishes, what He does. Thus again, our reading from Isaiah 49, the people are about to be afflicted because of their sin. Israel's exile was entirely earned and deserved. They had no power to deliver themselves. In fact, that's true of all people, right? If we rely on what we do, on what we earn, that's exile. Being cast off from God. But what does God say to them? Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. How can you rejoice? We're about to be exiled. He tells you how. The Lord has comforted His people, and He will have compassion on His afflicted. But the armies of Syria are so great, or of Assyria are so great, and the war cries of Babylon are ringing on the distant hills. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you, says God. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God himself tells us in baptism, you are mine by my choice. Your earthly parents might let you down. Your grandparents might turn their backs on you. Your closest friends might betray you, but I will not. You can trust in me. And therefore, young people, children, whenever you see baptism, remember it is God Himself who commanded that sign and seal to be placed on you. The people in your life, they might let you down, but He won't. And what He shows you in that sacrament is the most important gift you can ever receive the gift of cleansing the gift of transformation the gift of being reconciled and made righteous in the sight of God by what Jesus and only Jesus has done the only thing we can do in response the only thing is believe him trust him and refuse to doubt Baptism isn't about us. We can reinterpret it all we want. 
We can impute whatever meaning we desire to it, but that doesn't make those things true. God tells us that baptism is about Him. His call, His decision, His command, His cleansing, His grace. So let us believe the author who gave it and let us live in the light of that reality. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we so desperately need what your Son alone could provide. And in this sacrament, you've given us assurance that it's ours. Grant to us confidence that what you have promised is ours in truth. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from ever doubting your sufficiency your grace, or your goodness. In fact, Lord, enable us to encourage one another to live according to this reality that you have set upon us by this sacrament so that we might display our faith in all that we do, all that we say, even that which we desire. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. In response, let us ask the Lord through song to uphold, to strengthen, and to guide us and our children on whom that sacrament has been placed as we sing number 414 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 414.
Our offering this evening is for IRBC, the Institute for Reformed Biblical Counseling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of this resource for counseling, that we, through it, might receive biblical instruction in our trying times. We pray, Father, that you would bless that ministry and you would bless our offering as an encouragement to those who serve and as a means of equipping and strengthening your church. May you be glorified through this gift that we bring and through the gratitude for you that it reflects. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song is Psalm 23, Selection A from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 23A.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.